we have been making our way through the book of Genesis and we are coming into now close to the latter portion of this book, the beginning book of the Bible. And as we've been watching God work through his chosen people, the Hebrew people, those who came from Abraham, we've been learning lessons about faith in our Lord, of submitting to God, of not turning to the flesh, which so corrupts us, but of relying on God's word, relying on God's promises. You see, Jacob was given promises from the Lord. His parents knew that he was going to be the next of their family line to carry on the family spiritually, to be that man who was leading now the Jewish people. And that's exactly what God had done in his life. He made him the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jacob, the father, the patriarch of these 12 tribes of Israel, was a man who was running from a lot of things in life at the beginning of his life. Running from his family, running from his mistakes, Remember, he had to flee his family because he stole his brother's birthright. And his brother wanted to kill him. So he went to his uncle Laban. And then from there, his uncle Laban started to mistreat him. And because God was blessing Jacob, then he had to flee from his uncle Laban. And Jacob, as he was fleeing from his uncle Laban, was returning to meet with his brother Esau. And he heard that Esau had been coming to meet him with 400 men, and Jacob was fearful that Esau might finally get his vengeance. And as we read last week, Jacob got alone. He went to God, perhaps to pray, to get some rest. But the Bible teaches us that a man wrestled with Jacob that night. This man, many believe to actually be a Christophany, meaning Jesus, appearing in the Old Testament. You see, when Jacob is wrestling with this man, he is in tears, sobbing and asking for a blessing. And this angelic being who is wrestling with Jacob sees that Jacob is not letting him go in this wrestle, that Jacob won't let go. So the man, the God-man, has to touch Jacob's hip so that his socket comes out of place, causing much pain in Jacob's life in that moment and for the rest of his life. And Jacob tells this angel in tears that he will not let him go Till he blesses him. So the God-man who sees Jacob striving, that he is now just a broken man, says to Jacob, what is your name? He says, my name is Jacob. And then the man tells Jacob, no longer shall you be named 
Jacob, but from now on your name shall be Israel. His name meant, in Jacob, meant dirty, sneaky thief, supplanter, heel grabber. And now Israel, he who wrestles with God and is victorious, meaning governed by God, he who fights with God. See, Jacob now is a broken man. And so his name was rightly changed to Israel. And this is where we we picked up in the story of seeing how Jacob is going through progress spiritually. You see, as he was leaving his uncle Laban, before he left, he was praying with God and God told him to leave the land that he was in to return home to his family. God said, get up, get out of your uncle's land. I see what your uncle's been doing, how he's been mistreating you. And go back home. And so this is now in Jacob's mind to return home. And on the way, he has to face the reality that his brother, the man whom he stole from, is coming to meet him with a large company. And this might strike fear into the hearts of most, as it did with Jacob. Let's see in Genesis chapter 33, beginning with verse one, what Jacob does as he's going to go meet Esau now. It says in verse one, now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. So as Esau is now coming with 400 men, the Bible says, Jacob begins to divide the families up so that if Esau was to attack one family, perhaps the other families might get away. Now remember, Jacob had multiple wives. He had four wives, and from these four wives, 12 tribes would come. At this moment, he has these 11 children. And as he has all these kids now being divided up, what I recognize here is who he puts in the front, the middle, and behind. And I do see an obvious favoritism. In sequence, you have the maidservants and their children, and then Leah, and then Rachel and Joseph last. You can imagine that this was quite the dysfunctional family. Multiple wives, many children, favoritism. I don't think that Jacob's family life was by any means easy. I think he allowed a lot of his own mistakes to build up in his life before he was being governed by God. But what I do recognize is that God, throughout all this, the Bible teaches us that God was present with Jacob, that God was blessing Jacob through this because God saw what Jacob would become. And God had grace on his life. In verse 3, then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground 
seven times until he came near to his brother. So as he is now approaching Esau, we see him now submitting to his older brother Esau. Whereas before he was usurping and supplanting his brother, now he is bowing seven times. This number seven, it's related to completion or wholeness or perfection. And this is a full submission now that Jacob is making to Esau. He has this repentant spirit for what he did, how he stole from him. And the interesting thing, though, is that even as Jacob is doing this, God still sees as Jacob to be the man who's going to carry on as the family patriarch. It says in verse 4, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So perhaps now this fearful moment Jacob's coming. You have Esau with 400 men. The fear grips him. He's like, all right, families, divide. You guys go in the front. You guys in the middle were in the back. And he sees Esau coming to him. And I'm sure as there is this moment of fear, perhaps building up, I can imagine like in a movie, they're coming and he sees this look on Esau's face of a forgiveness. This look, perhaps it says that they were weeping. They embraced each other, that he fell on his neck, meaning to to come close and to kiss one another as this brotherly love. They've been separated for over 20 years, 20 years, and when they left, they left on terrible terms. And they didn't have Facebook or Instagram to message one another to get back in touch. So this has been a long time, and I'm sure as they ran to meet each other, it says, there was that theme song playing in their head, Dun, 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 dun. That chariots of fire theme song. And they have this moment where God restores them. And I realize that God is a God of restoration. That God can do miracles in life. I've seen this time and time again in marriages and families. Those people who were together at one time who we think, oh man, well, they're never going to be alongside of each other ever again. God has the power and the ability to restore. I've seen it done in close friends of mine's lives. Marriages, family members. If God is calling you to restoration, we need to be open to that. We need to be forgiving and loving. All this taken with discernment on where God is leading you. In verse 5, And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor 
in the sight of my Lord. So Esau is referring to how Jacob had earlier in the last chapter sent successive droves of gifts, a company of people with gifts of camels, livestock, food to Esau, multiple rounds of people doing this. And whenever that person would go, Esau would see this gift and say, what is the meaning of this? And that messenger would say, this is a gift from your brother. He's coming with his family and desires to give you this gift. And then another company would come and that man would tell him the same message. And Jacob did this in order to appease Esau, perhaps to calm Esau down if Esau was still angry. And in verse 9, it says, But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. You see, we do have this tendency to attempt to buy the favor of another in exchange for something. That word favor, it has the same meaning as the word grace. In the Bible, favor and grace are sometimes interchangeable. And that word grace, it means unmerited favor though. Meaning it's given a gift to someone whether they deserve it or not. It has nothing to do with something that they did. It's just a free gift. And so many times we find ourselves trying to buy grace, trying to buy favor with God. This is a a works-based religion when we try to do that. It's not the, the loving relationship that God desires to walk in. You see, when we worship God, it's not because we have to worship God. It's we get to worship him. You see, before I became a Christian, I used to think, man, I'll never want to be a Christian because they have all these rules they have to abide by. And I'll never want to be that way. But when I was broken and finally said, God, just come into my life, suddenly my desire, my appetites were to simply obey God to read his word, to pray, to be in fellowship. And I began to do that not because I had to, but now I had a desire for it. And we should pray that that desire would grow in our hearts and in our minds. In verse 10, And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. You see, in Jacob's heart and mind, This is a miracle that's taking place. Esau had forgiven him. This is a miracle. And seeing Esau's face was as miraculous as seeing the face of God. And I love how he phrased it that way to his brother, that the fact that he's seeing him is like seeing the face of God. 
because he actually did see the face of God. The man he wrestled with when he was struggling, who took the hip socket out of him, that was the God man. At the end of that chapter, Jacob even says, who am I that I have seen God's face and still live? I've seen the face of God. Now this was not God the Father, but the God-man. That's why most Bible scholars see that this was Jesus he was wrestling with. Now, as I am watching this miracle take place between these two brothers, how Esau is telling him, look, you, you can keep your gifts. I, I, I don't need them. I'm just glad we have a relationship. Jacob is just surrounded by it, the miracle of God. Probably wondering, man, I never thought in a million years that this would happen. Perhaps that night when he was praying there by himself, asking God to protect him from the trial that lay ahead. He already knew that Esau was coming to meet him with a group of 400 men, and he was scared. Perhaps he was saying, God, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to save us. I don't even know if you will save us, Lord. But maybe he said, but I know you can do it. This is what I tell myself sometimes. I'm saying, God, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't even know if you will do it in my life, Lord, that miracle that I'm praying about. But I know, God, that you love me so much that even if you want to do something else, God, I'm going to submit to your will. And when we give God the ability to take away, and to also add to our life. When we submit to his will, there's peace that comes with that. We're no longer striving in our flesh, but submitted to the Lord, governed by him. He gives us hope. And when God does do that miracle, what we've been praying for, we rejoice and we thank God in seasons of blessing and we thank God in seasons of trial. So this miracle takes place between these brothers and then look at verse 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and their children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. See, Jacob here seems to have a desire perhaps to still get away from Esau. 
there was restoration, but then perhaps Jacob was having a, a Jacob moment and acting in fear. Or perhaps Jacob was being a good shepherd and making sure that his family and his flock were going at a good pace. In verse 15, And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. Now that word for Succoth, it means tent or tabernacle, dwelling place. Now, an interesting term because later on, there would be a a great holiday, a great festival known as the festival, the feast of Succoth, meaning the feast of tabernacles. And this feast was celebrating how God provided for the children of Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness. You see, they would set up the tabernacle, they would set up their tents, and then they would worship the Lord, and God would provide for them. He protected them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the Israelites never were in need as they journeyed through the wilderness. When there was a need, God met it. He protected them. Their sandals didn't wear out, the Bible teaches. And so this was such an awesome experience that the Israelites experienced journeying through the wilderness that to commemorate the whole ordeal, they created a day where they would get together and celebrate this feast of Succoth. And they would actually set up tents outside of their homes and they would take the kids camping and they'd say, okay, kids, we're going to go celebrate Succoth, so we're going to go camping. And we'd go outside the stay under the tent and look at the stars. And then the kids would say, Dad, why do we celebrate Succoth? And then they would remind them, it's because God protected our forefathers in the wilderness all those years, son or daughter. And it's a reminder for us that God is with us in the wilderness, that this life we live, it's just a temporary dwelling This body that we're in is just a tent. We set it up. God gave us this life. And one day, this tent that we're in, this body, this bag of meat, will die. But our soul, our spirit, will live on. Those who believe in Christ will enter into eternity with Him. So we're pilgrims. We're we're outdoor campsmen and journeying through this life. So let's not begin to think that this tent is the home. No, our home is in heaven. And this tent one day will be taken down in a joyful way. Because we're going to be with God. Now, it says in verse 18, Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, 
when he came from Paddan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel, meaning God, the God of Israel. So notice, though, God in the previous chapter had told Jacob to leave Laban to go back home. And now in verse 18, once they get to Shechem, they pitch their tent and they remain there. One way to apply this to our lives, one thing to note, is that Jacob is not going home yet, as God had told him to, but he's only on his way home. There's a, he stops being partially obedient to God's command. And by being partially obedient in our life, we are actually disobedient. We have to be fully submitted to the Lord. We need to be, when God calls us to do something, to do it fully and completely. We do notice, though, that he's still worshiping God. He builds the altar, and he worships God there, God the God of Israel. In chapter 34, verse 1, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Dinah was one of the only daughters mentioned of Jacob. One of the, the young ones of 11, the youngest of 11. And I'm sorry, not the youngest, but one of the younger ones of the 11. And as we see her, she probably had these brothers who were very protective over her. But she leaves her family to go to be with the daughters of the land of Shechem. These were not the Israelites. She's leaving to go hang out with people from Shechem who spiritually or illustratively, those Canaanites were representative of the flesh. So she's now entering this land where she shouldn't have been going to. And in this land, there is an, a man named Shechem who sees Dinah, takes her, and rapes her. This is one of the tragedies that we read about in the Bible. This is something wrong where we see Shechem is going after what his flesh desires, having no regard for God or for Dinah. And then in verse 3, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So it seems that after this rape, this man Shechem becomes madly in love 
with Dinah. But this is not the God kind of love. This is a worldly type of love, one that uses, one that abuses. And then in verse 4, it says, So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. So now, in order to make Dinah his, he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I want you to go to Jacob, the father of these people, and I want you to get me Dinah as a wife. It says in verse 5, And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with the livestock in the field. And so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. So we see now the tension of these brothers who were protective of their sister. Perhaps they desired to get a hold of Shechem, this man, and kill him then and there. But Shechem is coming to them with a plea to ask for, to marry their daughter. But I can imagine that these brothers were so outraged by what had been done. It says in verse seven, I'm sorry, verse eight, but Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us. The land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. In verse 11, Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry the gift and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. Now here I, I do see Shechem completely in his flesh, completely desiring to fulfill his lust, trying to make this plea bargain. And now Jacob and his brothers are faced with the temptation to allow this to happen to forgive for the offense without consequence and to not have justice, but to simply allow Shechem to take over this situation. They're tempted with this, but there's an even more disturbing temptation that the brothers face, and that's going to be the one of vengeance. You see, yes, Shechem should be punished. But their brothers, the tw- brothers of Dinah, we're going to read what they do in their own vengeance, not on God's terms. It says in verse 13, 
But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Now, we're going to find out this deal that these brothers are, are doing with Shechem and his father. They had something up their sleeve that they weren't revealing yet, a way to get back at what Shechem had done. They said, all right, we'll make this deal with you, and we will join you, our nation with your nation. And what I see is we should never make a deal with the flesh, ever. Whenever we make deals with the flesh, it leads to, to more flesh. It leads to more sin and to, to hurt, to pain, to suffering that's unnecessary. We need to be done with the flesh. We cannot have compromise in our hearts or in our minds. The Bible teaches us that when we are faced with with temptation, to submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee. So they make this deal. They say, okay, you know what? If you and all of your people of Shechem are circumcised yourselves, then we will allow our sister Dinah to marry Shechem. It's kind of interesting how this guy's named Shechem and the city's named after him. Kind of prideful, no? In verse 18, And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. In verse 20, And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. You see, circumcision was given to the Jews. And now they're having this deal where the Jews and this pagan nation are going to be intermixing their seed. When God had told Jacob and Abraham that it was going to be through their specific seed that the Messiah would, would come. And now we're having the possibility of these two nations intermingling. This was an attack of the enemy. 
And then in verse 23, Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city, he did Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So I'm seeing this now to, in order for this to happen. These men probably had great intentions of overtaking these people, the Israelites, and adding to themselves of their riches, of their livestock. Because that's a, quite an uh, activity to engage in, to have all the males circumcise themselves. I think most men would be hard-pressed to make a deal like that. Now in verse 25, Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. You see these men, Simeon and Levi? They had been planning this the whole time. They knew if they could get the men to be circumcised, that they would be weak. And when all the men of this town were weak, they'd be able to attack them, and the men wouldn't have much of a defense. So they slaughtered everyone and took away captive people and livestock. Simeon and Levi had been completely engulfed in vengeance and revenge and hatred and anger. So they took it out on this entire city. All those people who are killed at the hands of Simeon and Levi. The Bible teaches us that vengeance is God's. God says, vengeance is mine. I will recompense, says the Lord. You see, vengeance is not in our hands. And a lot of times when we try to defend ourselves, God just lets us try on our own and he doesn't need to step in to defend us and we do a terrible job at it. You see, when we go against the will of God and try to take things into our own hands, sometimes God allows us to see how it's just better to let him take over. In verse 30, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? 
You see, Jacob himself didn't do what he should have done in having Shechem punished. You see, Shechem should not have gotten away with treating Dinah the way he did. But neither should have Simeon and Levi taken on the whole city of Shechem the way they did. Two wrongs don't make a right. And now Jacob is fearful that the people now and the neighboring inhabitants are going to rise up and kill them. It is because of this very thing that later on, as Jacob, like his father did to him when he's blessing his sons, before he departs to be with the Lord. Jacob is blessing his 12 children and even some of his grandkids. And as he's blessing them, when he goes down the line with each one, he gets to Simeon and Levi. And for both of these men, he actually lays a curse upon them because of what they did here. You see, Simeon and Levi are not going to get away with this. God himself is still sovereign to chasten his children. And as Simeon and Levi are are cursed, we recognize that Levi himself was cursed that he was not going to have land in the future, him and his descendants. But here's the interesting thing about Levi. What do we know about Levi and the Levites? They become the priesthood. Isn't that the grace of God? Isn't that the grace of God where he would tell the Levites, you will have no land for I will be your land. You see, the Levites were men who had turned away from the flesh and turned back to God. So much so that he used them as the priesthood. Those who would minister to the people who would offer sacrifice to the Lord on behalf of the people. And you so even if you've messed up in life, even if you've had outbursts of rage and anger, God wants to be gracious to you. He desires to be long-suffering and loving. But we need to repent. We need not to act on our emotions, but we need to act on what God's will is for our lives. A lot of the flesh going on in these couple chapters. Look at verse 1 of chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So now God is again telling Jacob, Look, man, we were on track, we were going home. I need you to get up again. You need to go home. Go to Bethel. Dwell there. Remember Bethel, house of God? And then it says in verse 2, And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change 
your garments. Ooh, that's a verse to underline. Sometimes I have uh, these specific pens with different colors that will mean certain things as I read my Bible. So this one, I would have put it as, for me, it was the brown meant that was instruction. I would have underlined this in brown because this was an instruction to us that we can relate to. It was an instruction to Jacob, to his children, to put away foreign gods, purify yourselves, and change your garments. We need to put away idols in our life. Those that are from the world, especially, purify ourselves is to be holy, to set ourselves apart for God's use and not for our own pleasure, not for the world's use. And then to change our garments, to repent, to turn, to go the other way, to put on the armor of God and take off, allow the Holy Spirit, allow Jesus to take off our sinful garments. This is a message to us. In verse three, then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. See, they're going now to the house of God and they're going to restore this altar that Jacob had made there a long time ago. Sometimes we need to go back to that place where we were when we first met God. Maybe that's emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, what have you. When we first met God, that love, that simplicity of faith, of just knowing, God, here I am to worship you. You are my God, my Lord and my Savior. We need to have that moment every day, in the morning, in the evening, even in the afternoon, at supper time, every moment. That heart of repentance. I do notice how Jacob made them all give up their, their earrings, so we do recognize that earrings are sinful. I'm just kidding. Earrings are not sinful. (laughs) At the time, there were forms of pagan practices where they would have earrings that were used for some cultic stuff. But don't worry, this is not a a proof text that earrings are sinful. And verse 5, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob, So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. Because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel, under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alan Bakuth. Now what I recognize here is Jacob is worshiping the Lord. 
He's there. He's returning back to that place where God appeared to him, where God reminded him that he would be with him, that he would go with him. And Jacob made this deal with God. God, if you take me there and bring me back, I know for sure you will be my God. And God was faithful to this. We see God is faithful. But that doesn't mean that Jacob is now exempt from trial in his life. In verse 8, he now experiences the death of one of his wives, Deborah. And there's pain in this. See, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that we're going to be exempt from pain. And if there's anyone who's giving you those ideas, don't listen to them. Understand that as Christians, we will endure tribulations. In verse 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from, where he came from, when he came from, Paddan Aram, and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. What I recognize in this is that God had to remind Israel what his name was. He had already told him he had a name change. But what did we just read in this chapter? Jacob had to go to his family and tell them to put away the foreign gods. What does that tell us? It tells us that they were allowing idolatry to come back into their life. That Jacob was allowing idolatry back into his family's life. See, though Jacob was a man who is now Israel governed by God, he still let that flesh old man, the old sinful way, rise up again. And so God sometimes has to, in our life, get us back to that place where we're saying, you know what, we're giving this sin up again. And I love how God is the God of second and third and fourth and infinite chances. And God is gracious and merciful, but we need to be repentant and come to him. So now in verse 11, also God said to him, I am God almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place, the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. See, he's being reminded of what God had already done in his life, and we need that sometimes. For me, there was a, a not a mission trip, a retreat that I once took uh, to Mammoth. And I was right after I had gotten saved, maybe about two months after I got saved. And on this retreat, I remember going to Rainbow Falls, this big waterfall like something out of like a Jungle Book movie waterfall. 
And I remember going down to that waterfall and the water was really cold and but cool at the same time because it was kind of warm up there during the summer. And I remember going under that waterfall for the first time as a Christian and just thinking that God's grace was so much more powerful and more surrounding than even that waterfall was at the moment. And I just felt as if the Holy Spirit was reminding my heart, telling my heart that he had grace on my life. That though I was a a sinner lost in the world, that his grace was abundantly overflowing me now. This is the type of grace that God has for us. We, We don't have to work for it. We can simply receive it. And it's available for you to receive tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We ask, Father, that if there are idols in our hearts, if there's pride, if our emotions take us to to places of vengeance and of hate, which we are not to go, forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us of our sins, Lord. Father, may we be submitted to you fully and completely. May we go back to that place of worship. May we trust you, Lord, that you are leading us, you're guiding us in our life. We love you, Father. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Use us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. This week, we encourage you guys to uh, tune in tomorrow night. We're going to be live on the podcast uh, for prayer. And also a reminder, on Sunday, we were going to be meeting at 11.30 a.m. in my backyard. 11.30 a.m. That is a, ch- a time change. But use the name of Jesus this week in conversation with people. Allow him to open that door. Ask God to open a door for you, to share with someone, to invite someone to church. And just watch and see how God can bring so much grace in your life when you are open to receive it. Let's end with the song.
just I adore you.